Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Affinity Konar. Hi, everybody. I'm so grateful to you all for coming out here. I'm just overwhelmed. My parents are here. Uh, all this LA writing friends and family, I'm just, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to be reading from three places in the novel, actually. It, uh, it's told from two different perspectives, so I'd like to show a little a bit of each. Okay. We were made once, my twin Pearl and me. Or to be precise, Pearl was formed and I split from her. She embossed herself on the womb, I copied her signature. For eight months we were afloat in amniotic snowfall, two rosy mittens resting on the lining of our mother. I couldn't imagine anything grander than the womb we shared. But after the scaffolds of our brains were ivoried and our spleens were complete, Pearl wanted to see the world beyond us. And so, with newborn pluck, she spat herself out of our mother. Though premature, Pearl was a sophisticated prankster. I assured myself that it was just one of her tricks. She'd be back to laugh at me. But when Pearl failed to return, I lost my breath. Have you ever had to live with the best part of yourself adrift, stationed at some unknowable distance? If so, I am sure you are aware of the dangers of this condition. After my breath left me, my heart followed suit, and my brain ran with an unthinkable fever. In my fetal pinkness, I faced this truth. Without her, I would become a split and unworthy thing, a human incapable of love. That is why I followed my sister's lead and allowed the doctor's hands to tear me out and smack me and hold me to the light. Let us note that I never cried during the ruptures of this unwanted transition, not even when our parents ignored my wish to be named Pearl too. I became Stasha instead, and with the chore of birth complete, we entered the, fam- entered the world of family and piano and book, of days that baffled by in beauty. We were so alike. We were always dropping marbles from the window onto the paving stones and watching them descend the hill with our binoculars just to see how far their little lives would take them. That world, teeming with awe, ended too. Most worlds do. But I must tell you, there was another world we knew. Some say it was the world that made us the most. I want to say that they are wrong, but for now, let me tell you that our entry into this world began in our twelfth year of life, when we were huddled side by side in the back of a cattle car. During that journey of four days and four nights, we cheated our way into survival under Mama's and Zeta's instruction. For sustenance, we passed an onion back and forth and licked its yellow hide. For entertainment, we played the game Zeta made for us, a game called The Classification of Living Things. In this form of charades, you had to portray a living thing, and the players had to name the species, the genus, the family, and so on, all the way to the encompassing brilliance of a kingdom. The four of us passed through so many living things in the cattle car. We postured from bear to snail and back. It was important, Zeta emphasized in his thirst-cracked voice, that we organized the universe to the best of our two human ability. 
and when the cattle car finally came to a stop, I stopped my charade too. The way I remember it, I was in the middle of trying to convince Mama that I was an amoeba. It's possible that I was portraying some other living thing and that I'm remembering it as an amoeba now only because I felt so small in that moment, so translucent and fragile. I cannot be sure. Just as I was about to admit defeat, the door to the cow car rolled open. So that was from the perspective of Stasha, and, and now I'm going to read Pearl's introduction to the world of Auschwitz. September 7th, 1944. The bread made everyone forget. That was one of the first things Bruna taught me. It was full of bromide, and all it took was a day's worth of crust lining your stomach to make your mind mist over. Since I was the half in charge of time and memory, I always gave the bulk of my portions to Sasha. One of us, I decided, should be encouraged to forget as much as possible, and I found other ways to sustain myself with Bruna's help. Bruna called me smidgen one, and Stasha was smidgen two. It was her way of owning us, but I didn't mind it much, because it seemed better to be owned by Bruna than by anyone else. She taught me all sorts of useful things. She's taught me how to make a soup from the grass in the soccer field, how to stew it discreetly in a pot, and how to obtain a pot in the first place. She showed me how to ingratiate myself with the cook and how to carry supplies to the kitchen so that I might organize some things for us. A potato here, an onion there, a few lumps of coal, a book of matches, a spoon. She sewed a burlap sack for me to keep in the waistband of my skirt so that I could be a stealthier thief. Soon enough, I held the whole of our world in that little sack. I wondered what Mama might think of our association with Bruna. On the outside, I would have feared her, but in a place swarming with treachery, she was family, and we did our best to repay her with our affection. She loved our games. They were more sophisticated than the standard grave-digging game that many of the other children favored, and she was always ready for riddles, or kill Hitler, or the classification of living things, which she was quite terrible at, as she had such odd opinions about what made a living thing superior or functional or worthy of life. Bruna was only 17, but she'd been in Auschwitz for three years and had slunk from labor camp to labor camp for months before that. And so she knew, she assured us, what she was talking about. She said that where we lived was far superior to other sites that were unpaved, their only concrete poured into towers, their only decoration, the crook of guns into the sky. More civilized here, she liked to say, but that is not a good thing. She kept herself occupied, this Bruna, and not only with us. She was always leaping up to help one person or to torture another. She was a busybody who presided over everyone. Much of the day, she stood on the top of a barrel outside the girls' barracks, shielding her eyes from the sun with one hand. Nothing escaped her attention. If a nurse wanted something organized for the infirmary, Bruna found it. If a twin was bullying another, Bruna bullied back with pleasure. If Twin's father required a book, Bruna procured it. If someone wasn't a great lover of communism, Bruna helped him or her find that love. Still, even these activities were often not enough to satisfy her restless nature. I'm bored, she declared on her third day within the zoo. You should entertain me. I've shown you girls my talents. She turned her pink eyes on me. Smidgen, too, keeps boasting about your tap dancing. 
Stasha is exaggerating, I said. Show me, Bruna commanded, dismounting from her barrel with a showy jump. I am a great appreciator of art. My life is proof of that. I stole a paintbrush once. I stole tickets to the ballet. I stole a dozen china figurines from a fine department store. They caught me for that one, but I stole those figurines all the same. I did time, paid penance. I suffered for art, you see, and so you can't refuse me. She regarded me expectantly and then, refused, then removed a few stones from the dirt before us to prepare a stage. I was shocked when she failed to toss them in the direction of any passerby, as she was known never to waste a potential weapon, but it seemed that she was occupied with a different form of anticipation. Come now, Pearl, she said. Show me how you dance. Let me forget a little. I'm not going to dance here, I insisted. I have no reason to. As practice for when we get out, Sasha said, and she bent to clear another stone away. For the future. I'm in charge of the future, remember? I won't, I said. Bruna folded her arms and watched us argue. This seemed entertainment enough for her. But Stasha insisted that I had to practice. I had to make preparations for the life we'd have when the war was over because my dancing might be the only way to provide for our family once the cities were destroyed and all the dead were counted up, once the fathers never came back and the houses never rebuilt themselves. And I'd like to go ahead and read a a third part. It's from Stasha's perspective, and this is following liberation. Like a brass bell sprinkled with snow, this straw temple rose from the earth with a steady determination. As we neared, we saw that we were not the only ones that this golden column had drawn in. It appeared that bales had been removed from the lowermost of this stack to create a burrow. We could see the discarded piles of hay flung about, their golden threads strewn on the ice, and through a flimsy panel of straw at the rear, we could see a peepery of eyes. They were scattered throughout in the manner of a constellation and with equal glitter. The eyes were friendly, I thought, but I'd been wrong about the friendliness of eyes before. Was this a trap, a trick? Another boom cried out into the night. Before we could debate, Felix parted the wall of of straw and scurried inside. He dragged me with him deep into the itchy burrow on hands and knees. On all fours, we were rib to rib and so close to each other that I was quite unsure where I ended and he began. You would think this would have been a welcome feeling considering the compromises of my hearing and vision, but it made me feel only amorphous and undone. Adding to this discomfort was the general overpopulation of the haystack, which trembled with the shifts of its fugitives. We were not the only ones on hands and knees. Though it was dark, I could make out the forms of five individuals, all seated against the perimeter, and all so small that I assumed them to be children, not a one of them any older than the age of seven. But the curses that confronted us were quite adult. They tumbled towards us in check. We do not speak that language, we said. Then a, view, then a few voices switched to cursing us in Polish. That is the way to curse us, we said, and we apologized for crowding them so. You can't stay here, a male voice hissed. His Polish was quite good, I thought. Why can't we stay, we hissed back. No room. We did not escape to be crushed by strangers. You must leave. 
but we are making it warmer in here for you, I pointed out. The temperature was most hospitable with this crowd of bodies, and the ceiling of this burrow was so low that when I moved my head, the hay tickled my scalp in a pleasant way. I cared little whether our hosts welcomed us or not. I could not ignore the welcome of this golden palace. It is true that you're warming us, the male voice conceded, but we have warmth enough and you're crowding my mother. This haystack is not as spacious as it appears, and it belongs to us. We carved out this burrow with our hands. Do you know how difficult a feat this is in winter? Only the most desperate men are capable of such miracles. I respected the speaker's message, but I did not care to move. It was too lovely in the haystack, like curling up in a summer I'd once known. The perfume of the hay was so sweet, and the perfume of its inhabitants, it was not terrible. For all time, I could live there, and my reluctance to exit made this clear. A large sigh arose. It sounded as if it came from the depths of a matriarch. The eloquent speaker addressed us again. You have to leave, children. I am sorry. We have no room. Exhaustion possessed me, and I could only weep. And I did not care who my tears fell on in this little crowd. Stasha, Felix whispered, collect yourself. All the haystack hushed after this command. Stasha, said the male voice. Pearl's sister? Who are you, Felix demanded. He was truly a bear in the tradition of the classification of living things. A defensive lining, part growl, had entered his voice. Bruno would, have been Bruno would have been proud of this performance, but the speaker was not put off at all by this inquiry. I'm the one you call Sardine, he said. His voice was even and brave. It had none of the oily flavor or shrunken nature of a canned fish. I couldn't imagine a more inaccurate term for this gentlemanly lilliput, and I hung my head in recognition of the taunts he had so stoically faced. We're sorry, Felix said truly. We can't beg for your forgiveness enough. Because it was Mirko who presided over the straw temple alongside his family. Apologies were owed to the lot of them, because the children of the zoo had referred to all the Lilliputs as sardines at Bruna's instruction. Now, it seemed, sardines would be the preservation of us. Upon realizing that we'd been reunited with fellow survivors, we felt as if the whole world might be held within this haystack. It was all that mattered. In this pile of straw, I thought, there may not be happiness, but there is a hope that may impersonate happiness, if only for a small while. We had lived through death together. How could we not want the intimacy of this, of this haystack? Thank you. Um, does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask? Yes. Um, so what inspired you and how much research did you do? Oh, that's such a good question that could be answered in so many different ways. Um, I, when I was 16, I first uh, read a book called Children of the Flames by um, Lucette Lagnato and Sheila Kondekel, and that was the story of the twins of Auschwitz and Joseph Mengele, and that sort of sparked the whole idea for it, but I was far too young to ever even think of writing it. But the story just kind of followed me around for for years, and I would do research here and there in bits and pieces, and sometimes it would get 
too difficult to keep going, so I would put the, put the book aside. It was never a sort of straight, disciplined shot of research. It was fairly natural and organic. I would write about something and have a certain question and, and seek that out. But I had you know, some core source books that I kept returning to. Um, mostly, um, The Truce was actually my introduction to, to Primo Levi rather than Survival in Auschwitz. And I think that that shaped a lot of the book in a way because it's about the post-liberation life, which has always sort of fascinated me, that whole question of what do you do when it's over, when the worst is over, what other worst things are there to come. The writers who tackled that, who do you most appreciate? I mean, that's so hard for me to answer. Um, I think a lot of times I end up leaning towards poetry. Um, Paul Ceylon has kind of been a huge figure for me that always leads me back to questioning every sort of word that you write on this history. Um, a lot of Eastern European poets I looked at, um, Zagajewski and Zimborska, uh, I love her poems on the subject. Um, there's, you know, Borowski and there's a really remarkable book called um, Auschwitz, uh, True Tales from a Grotesque Land, maybe not the best title, it hasn't circulated very widely, but that book is really special to me because it has kind of like the lightness of like a sort of Yiddish folktale to it while it's while she's speaking about these terrible things and and the author was like a doctor in Auschwitz working close closely with Mengele. So that one became very special to me. Uh, writing about twin relationship is extremely difficult. It's, it's a very unique relationship between each set of those siblings. Have siblings? What did you draw from for that particular uh, insight into the, that relationship? All right, I'm smiling too much because my sister is here tonight, and I, I just, you know, she's she's taught me a lot about. No, we we are not twins. We are we are twins eight years apart. Um, you know, I don't know how my parents managed that, but they pulled it off. Um, I, uh, yeah, sibling bonds are just really important to me, familial bonds, period. It was very um, daunting taking on the twin relationship because it felt like such a cheat in fiction. Like, I, I just kept asking myself, how could I justify this kind of relationship? It's just so incredibly loaded. And then you also have, like, the figure of someone like, like Mengele, who's the ultimate evil. It just felt like I was taking so many shortcuts to get to sort of... Uh, drama and emotion. So, I read a, I read quite a few twin narratives, but you know, I I don't claim that I can ever truly understand that. Yes. Um, it's really effective your sentence structure, um, and I'm just wondering how you think of. And you're mentioning the Yiddish folktale, so I guess you've thought about trauma and style. And could you riff a little bit on? writing about trauma? Mm. I mean, I, that's... It's another amazing question. It's um, a lot about... a lot of why I write in the first place. Um, 
just sort of an attraction to articulating the unspeakable and I've always I've always favored writers who take on the things that we don't want to speak about and I'm fascinated by how they how an author can write in circles around something or they can mask something to protect us from it and then at the right moment take away that mask and ask us to deal with it. I think that's part of why I've always been drawn to Holocaust poetry specifically is, is that circling the, around trauma. So the, the rhetoric being a circular style that so that, that, that whole stylistic impulse like Hilden Owl or something mm-hmm. the writing very much in that thing that circularity that gets you around and around and mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I edit a lot. I edit far more than I write. And I think a lot of that is about trying to find exactly what you're speaking of. It's it's a very sort of wending path. You don't really know how to navigate it, but it it designs its own corners in a way. It traps you. We're 70 years removed, and at times it seems surreal to us that it could have happened. Can you describe a little bit about your experience of actually being there recently? Um, No, um, I think we went, I went with my parents. Uh, I don't think I could go any other way, even though them being there made things more difficult too because you can't like step on that sort of ground without imagining being separated from them um and that was that was to me almost the heaviest part of that experience is, is just sort of it never really hit me before that like this was a place designed specifically to break up families and future generations and there, there was there was something about walking with them, specifically that affected me very deeply in a way that I didn't anticipate. I had spoken to many people about, you know, they'd said I went and I felt like a sense of catharsis. I felt healed. I felt um, I felt angry in a way that I needed to feel angry, but I I didn't anticipate being struck by that the way I was. And yeah, I don't. It's I'm still unpacking it in a way. It was. It's it's one of those. I, it's just the unspeakable all over again. I I feel like things are not only not resolved, but you go there and you hear the suggestion of other stories, and that was part of why I was so reluctant at times to write this book was because not only like the legacy of of holocaust fiction in general but just you can never you can never really fully say what you want about this subject you're going to look at one story and you're going to think of another you're going to write about one hero and think of another you're going to write about one person who was lost or one person who saved people and there's always so many millions behind them that you're thinking of. So, you know, going to Auschwitz also was just a confrontation of 
of limitations all over again. Yes? Did you find anything redemptive? I think the closest moment that I had to redemption there was actually uh, we went to over to Birkenau and seeing the sort of the destruction of the crematoria where Mengele worked was very satisfying to me because that was a product of Jewish resistance. That that was the closest thing that I felt. But, you know, very nearby there is also a swamp filled with human ash. And so that moment of feeling redemption is is so short-lived and Birkenau specifically is such a devastating experience because you have all these clear open spaces where the Nazis completely eradicated all evidence of what they or were trying to, to desperately hide what they had been doing so that place in particular carried a lot of meaning for me Were there parts that you found more difficult to write or any parts that you really enjoyed writing? Maybe were even delightful for you at all? Yeah. Um, no, I feel like there were great satisfactions in writing the book, and that's why I kept coming back to it. And part of it was just like Stasha's voice was really fun for me to write because she speaks in a lot of riddles, and, you know, she's... She's this rebellious dreamer, and uh, I, you know, I, kind of, I admire the spirit of both of the girls, but obviously you, you sort of write who you want to be. You can't dream of ever being what your characters are, but, but Stasha was very fun to write. Pearl was, also, Pearl was very difficult for me to write. Um, her voice is clear and it has a greater burden to bear witness in a more practical way. Like her voice is supposed to be very lucid and immediately received in a way that Stasha's is designed to sometimes confuse the very deliberately. So for some reason, writing that sort of straightforward fashion uh, is, is hard for me. It's especially, I guess, with the subject matter. It is it is easier to write a poetic line trying to capture horror than it is to state very distinctly this happened. It continued to happen. Yeah. What's your next book after this? Oh, I, I. Um, that that's the big. I think also. That might be another reason why I dragged my feet on it so long because it can only feel to me like sort of a life's work and that what can you do? Um, so I, I've been just sort of collaging ideas, but no, that's, it is a big question. And probably why I, I tried to prolong the writing process in a way.
I'm not quite sure. I I sort of I tend to write with like dialogue and conversations in my head between characters, and then things sort of sort themselves around that. So I do have some conversations in mind and a sort of general idea of setting, but yeah, I think I'll always. It's hard to imagine not being attracted to the same themes over and over again, and you know, trauma, as you were saying, is is a big theme that I I keep returning to. So, but, yeah, that won't. That's not something I'm able to leave behind even now. You expect to be able to leave it behind, and you find that you can't. Were your characters based on any people? Um. No, they weren't specifically based on real people, though I could look through my source material, Children of the Flames, and you can see glimmers of them. Like part of part of the initial inspiration for the book came from reading this one statement by an eleven year old boy where he he said that um all the children in the in the zoo were given these little pocket knives that they could use to cut their bread. And the pocket knives were very dull, so the Nazis, you know, there, it was presumed there was no threat to give these children these useless little pocket knives. And this 11-year-old boy just made this statement saying that he kept sharpening the pocket knife over and over because he swore that when the time came, he was going to take at least one Nazi with him. And it was just a remarkable thing for me to read and that created a character but it, they're definitely not based on specific people they're supposed to stand more as tributes to to specific figures so there are doctors that are inspired by real people and the twins are you know of course supposed to stand in tribute to the children who became subjects You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.